New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. One day you will sit at the bedside of someone you love and have a final conversation. That conversation will invite you into a unique territory, the one that exists between living and dying. You may hear words expressing a desire for forgiveness, reconciliation, or the fulfillment of a last request. Your beloved may describe being visited by deceased family members, angels, or animals, or speak of viewing lush landscapes where in reality there are only white hospital walls. As you listen closely, it may be a conversation that changes not only how you think about dying, but also how you think about living. These are the opening words of a book, Words at the Threshold, which is an investigation into the remarkable things people say at the end of life. Today we'll be exploring end-of-life communications from ordinary people with our guest, Lisa Smart. Lisa Smart is a linguist, educator, and poet. She's founder of The Final Words Project, an ongoing study devoted to collecting and interpreting mysterious language at the end of lives. She lives in Athens, Georgia, and is the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. Join us for the next hour as we explore the metaphor, symbol, and time loops of the inner worlds of those who are at the threshold of death and the messages they have for us. With our guest, Lisa Smart, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Lisa, welcome. Hi, Justine. Great to be here. It's great to have you. I'd love to have you start off by telling us, well, um, a little bit of your background and how you started this whole exploration. What, what was the impetus to make you look at this in the first place? I studied linguistics at UC Berkeley, and I love language. And language for me was always more than just get me the cup across the table. Language was something that was rich and mysterious. And my love for language and curiosity about it intensified in those last weeks of my father's life. As I sat bedside with him, 
I noticed that his language shifted in ways that I had never heard from him before. And he began to speak about things such as angels, which he never believed in. And he spoke almost, well, almost poetically. And he did have sort of a poetic soul, but he spoke in ways that I just had never recorded before or heard before um, when I was younger and as I was his daughter for many years. And I began to write down everything he said. And this was what brought me to establish the Final Words Project. That, so what, how was that helpful to you later on mm. when you said you wrote down everything he said? Now it's been quite a few years since his passing, I imagine. Yes, five years. Five years. So how, how is it helpful to you now that, that he's passed, that you've written mm. those words down or recorded them in some way? Writing down my father's words, you know, as a linguist, I was trained that whenever you hear unusual language, you write it down. And also just as a person who loved language, whenever I was baffled or hurt or saddened, I would write things down in my journal. It was just part of who I am. So as soon as I started hearing unusual language from my father, I started writing the words down in the journal, and it had dual purposes or more than dual purposes. One is it helped me with my own grief. As I wrote things down, it gave me sort of a point of focus and helped me process it. And also, the language that I heard was so unique and mysterious that on a day-to-day basis, out of context, it made no sense. But as I recorded it and began to see more gestalts, as we do with dreams, sometimes when we see the whole picture, we can get greater understanding Also, there were things that he said that later turned out, I don't know if they were exactly precognitive, but he kept talking about green dimension, seeing the green dimension. And ironically, when I moved to Georgia to do research in final words, I was looking for the perfect house and I found it on Greencrest Drive, which is just a small synchronicity. But then going back, of course, and the language that I recorded in those final days that I also Uh, I made art out of them with my mother, who's an artist, so that also was a healing modality for me. But of course, it led me to do this work in final words, and and that was also a remarkable gift. But I've spoken to other people through this work who have recorded the language of their loved ones, and it's offered insights and kind of a way in to their loved one's experiences that they're crossing their threshold. Exactly. I, you know, when, when I read that in your book about uh, the idea of, of having a, 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 like a journal mm-hmm. uh, uh, and writing these down in, in a kind of journal-like, that uh, I, I recall when my husband of over 40 years, when he passed away, just before he passed, maybe about three or four days before he passed, he called me from his hospital. He called me, or actually he was in a, a nursing care facility, in the middle of the night. And the phone rang, and it was Michael. And he said to me all the things that I had wanted to hear from him for our whole life. Oh, my. He, he thanked me for everything, profoundly thanked me for everything. And I, I just, like— heard it, I was still kind of almost in a hypnagogic state because I was still <laughs> kind of halfway dreaming and hearing him. And I just know I, it was powerful what he was doing and was so clear about it. 
and I never heard him say this in this way before. And I regret not sitting down and writing notes right afterwards that I, I had, you know, that I would have had his language. I have the feeling of it still. So I, I am just offering this to our listeners. Write it down. It, 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 it's going to make a difference later, and you may not even figure it out. Well, you have probably can say something about that. Yes, a uh, couple things. What a remarkable story, and yet it's one I hear commonly, that there's something about the language of the threshold that's intensified. Well, obviously, we're leaving each other, at least in this dimension, and the language we hear is always loving. It's so rare that someone would call someone in the middle of the night and, and say all the complaints. It's always about love and reconciliation. So that that's one piece. And then I thought it was so interesting that he called you at night. There's almost a quality of the language of the threshold that is, is almost dream time or belongs to the realm of the evening or the dark. And um, and by writing the words down, it becomes illuminated. And just as you said, and I've heard this so often from people who have transcribed their loved one's words, it's weeks, months, days, even you know, many, many months later, they look back at those words and go, ah, that's what he meant. Or, ah, I'm so grateful I captured those words. Exactly. And now, like some people would say, Like, because it's not, our loved ones may not be making literal sense. They they might be, the words might be confusing or nonsensical, I think, or nonsense words. And um, some people would say, oh, that's the medication talking. And what, what would you say about that? I would say that there are certain medications that might affect speech, definitely. However, what we also know from this research is that there are patterns of what we think of as nonsensical language that appears at this time of life. And they're falling into patterns no matter what the medications are or what the, you know, what the diseases are that, that people may be dying from. And, you know, what's so interesting about nonsense just in general we're really afraid of nonsense. It's almost a nonsense taboo. If you hear someone you love start speaking more nonsensically, you become afraid, and you may think pejoratively. As a matter of fact, we say, oh, that person's speaking nonsense. It's a negative thing. And yet, ironically, if you think of Dr. Seuss, who's the king of nonsense, his books have sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies, or even Alice in Wonderland, which is one of the most longstanding books for children. So... Nonsense is without a doubt part of the human vocabulary or experience, and yet really we are also so afraid of it. And one of the things that we found, and when I say we, as I studied with Dr. Raymond Moody uh, um, as I did this research, um, what we know is that there are these patterns. So, for example, one of the patterns that we found in the end-of-life language um, was paradoxical language. So something like, I'm going up so I can go down, or grant me a half a full measure of. These are paradoxicals, almost sounds like Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And we also know that people who have near-death experiences, they come back and describe their near-death experience in paradoxical terms. Someone might say, I never felt as alive as when I was dead. That's paradoxical nonsense. And so these kinds of paradoxes are one type of nonsense that we see 
at the end of life. As you're saying that, I'm reminded of something that you have said in your writings that what separates our species from others mm-hmm. is is has to do with language and has to do with it, that we are a sense-making species. We want to make sense of everything. So what you're talking about in these words at the threshold take us to another kind of reality that has maybe different rules, and that's what can be confusing for us as the person sitting with our beloved. Yes, and some examples, that's a very good point, some of the examples are um, one of the types of nonsense we find is called prepositional shift, or I'm calling it that, where people start talking about space in really unique ways. I got to get down there. I have to go down. Well, they're lying on a bed, as far as we can see, almost motionless, perhaps, and yet they're talking about moving up. I've got to go down to earth. Help me. I'm on top now, moving on top. I'm crossing up. I'm crossing up. So these are, again, really paradoxical. Here's someone lying in bed, usually almost motionless, and yet they're having experiences of movement and talking about it. And we do not know what's really going on. Most of us do not know what's going on at those very last moments or days. And all we can do is be open to the experience our loved ones have had. And we know that people who talk about near-death experiences have had talked about being out of body and moving up and looking down. So a lot of the nonsense that we hear, and I'll speak more about it, I hope, during our conversation, but a lot of the nonsense we hear may actually indicate some kind of shift or change as we cross the threshold. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Lisa Smart. She spells her last name S-M-A-R-T-T. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, finalwordsproject.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Lisa Smart. She spells her name S-M-A-R-T-T, Lisa Smart, and she's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. Lisa, I, I'd love for you to give us your best advice about how to be with that person. As you're describing that they're describing this world that we can't see, Uh, What's the best way to be with them in that moment? 
You know, the very one word in that is validate, validate the person's experience. So for example, someone had just told me last week about having a conversation with her mother and her mother said, you've got to let the dog out of the fence. You've got to let the dog out. And the daughter was baffled and had no idea, but then just decided to engage in the conversation about the dog and the fence. And they had this remarkable conversation, which for the daughter gave her the sense that the mother really was talking about, let my spirit go. I mean, once they had the conversation, it evolved. And so I really feel the first step is to enter the world of the person who is dying and One way, as we talked about, is keeping a journal helps us do that, but to really listen carefully and have eyes for the sacred. Really step into that time imagining that every word that's coming out is a gift and is sacred. And even if it seems scary and even if it's baffling or puzzling, just imagine holding it with sacredness. I just, I'm reminded of an example of that that you give in the book, and it's it's a health health care person. And she's she there's a vase of daisies that are dying, and she's going to um, throw them out. But she has enough presence, and I think that this is what you're saying to have the presence to to note to notice that the woman. Do you remember the story and what the woman said to her before she threw them out? To something about. Similar to that they're wilted. They were wilting and she's going to throw them out. And then the the woman in the bed said, oh, don't throw them out. And she realized, she said, she turned around to her and said, oh, let me put them in fresh water. And she put them in fresh water and she set the wilted flowers by her, by this woman's, dying woman's bedside. And then the woman said, don't they die so beautifully as these petals were falling? And it was like a comfort to this woman. Yes. And to have thrown them out might have been, oh, I'm going to get thrown out. Or Yes, uh, yes. And I, what happens is it... People seem, you know how in dreams we have these symbols and images that are very real to us. I mean, we're running away from demons who may not exist in real life, but things that are very real. And as people die, they seem to enter a very metaphorical reality. And that becomes more real than the cup on the table, or at least that becomes as real as the cup on the table. And when as people are dying, they bring in sort of the signature metaphors of their life. So for this woman, flowers were an important symbol to sort of step into her world and talk about the flowers was to meet her where her reality was. And we know that as people are dying, they use these signature metaphors. So for example, Jeffrey Holder, the dancer and choreographer, his very final words were, arms two, three, turn two, three, swing two, three down, two, three. So to have ears for those signature metaphors, whether it's the counting words of a dancer, choreographer, or someone who probably, I would guess, she's always loved flowers, you know, the woman in that story. And as we really listen to what are the metaphors of people's lives and meet them there and don't try to bring them back to, no, 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 the flowers are dying, the flowers are dying, but meet people where their experiences are. And one example I loved to show how different people are. Um, This woman, Carol, emailed me with the account of her father's last words, and he was a roofing contractor. He would awake and look over at me and smile so big. 
and he told me, they have all these kitchen nets over there. There were miles and miles of them, he told me, and he would be helping build them. So as he was approaching the threshold, you know, we could say, oh, Dad, you're imagining things. But why? Instead, enter into that world of that's remarkable that there are kitchenettes. What will you be doing to them? I bet you're very excited about, you know, being able to bring who you are to those kitchenettes. So you're giving us an idea of how to extend the conversation, just joining in as if all of that were real, because it is real on some level. And I I was telling you before the interview started about how uh, my first instance of being with someone who was dying was um, my first mother-in-law for my earlier marriage. And at the end, she was um, playing gin rummy with me, cards. And there were no cards there. There was nothing there. And this was back in the 60s. But I knew enough to to play, to join her and play, and and it seemed to relax her. And I realized from reading your book that if I had said, oh, there are no cards, or should I get some cards for you, or something like that, it it just would have interrupted something. Yes, and it's interesting because one of the metaphors that come up pretty commonly in our transcripts or my transcripts is first is some kind of announcement of a big event coming or some kind of a momentous often. And one of the most common ones is a poker game or a bridge game. And so, and people will refer to needing a fourth player. And so, um, you know, they, there's a threesome they're playing and they need a fourth and I'm the fourth. And this is a metaphor that comes up, uh, comes up along with golf, which came up um, several times as well. And so in your case, you entered into the card game, but sometimes that card game is also announced to, uh, from our beloveds saying that there's some big event is coming up and that they will be joining that big event. Sometimes that event is a dance or a dinner. For example, um, one man explained, my grandmother woke up in the middle of the night and started getting dressed in a long gown that was in the back of the closet. She was sitting at her dressing table, putting on jewelry and makeup. An aide came in to see what was going on, and my grandma said, why, I'm getting ready for the big dance. She then lay down on the bed and died. Wow. So can you imagine taking that dance away from her, right? She was preparing for something. And I believe that by entering into the world and having eyes for the sacred, we're allowing our beloveds to enter whatever that metaphor is. And for all we know, whatever that reality might be, for me, why not enter into it? We do that with our children, right? When they have maybe uh, imaginary realities. And again, we don't know really what's Real and not. Right. I mean, we play tea party with our little <laughs> yes. daughters. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And or, so why not give that gift right. also, also to our loved ones? And we know that at the end of life, people see visitors. And I've heard now recently, I spoke to some hospice providers, and they, they shared with me, this particular group, that for their team, the number one predictor that someone is going to be dying soon is they start seeing visitors, people who had died before them, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, who literally come to their bedside to take them home or take them away. And this has also now been validated by a study from the Center for Hospice and Palliative Care, 
they looked at 500 people, 500 people, and over 70 either had dreams or visions of homecomings with beloveds who are taking them home soon before they crossed the threshold. So on one hand, we're talking about these imaginary card games, but on the other hand, these visitations seem very real and are a very real projector of death approaching. So there's definitely a mystery at the threshold. There's a mystery, and, and it seems to me that something is being shown that there is possibly, most likely, a survival of consciousness, That's, that there is something that's happening there between the worlds. I, I'm thinking of another idea about a dream that you mentioned in the book that really struck me. It was like uh, something that validated this, and it was a dream that came to someone. Her brother had died, and I think her brother's name was Mick. Mm-hmm. And Mick had died, and she had this dream after he died that he was with um, the actor who had also died many years before, James Dean. Mm-hmm. And they were both wearing motorcycle boot jackets or something. And then, do you remember this story? Yes. Oh, please tell it. Yes, and then her her brother's friends had, uh, earlier before he passed, sort of made an agreement with him, and he said that he would come uh, as James Dean or with James Dean in his motorcycle jacket, or he would appear with him. And so then the sister had the dream. Is that, I hope... Yeah, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. And she and then, didn't know that he had made... Exactly. He had made this agreement with exactly. his with his friends that... He would he would come to them from the other side, and they would know because he'd appear as James Dean yes. in a dream yes. to his sister. Yes, and so they went over to her house and they said, "Have you had a dream?" And she said, "Well, as a matter of fact, I did. I dreamed." <laughs> and she told them the dream, and they just high fived each other and said, "Yes, <laughs> right, yeah." He came back. He came back, and he did what he said he was going to do, and she had no knowledge of that. That's right. That's like um so. These stories are just amazing that uh, the dreams, the visitations, the the kinds of people uh, that help us to carry us over the threshold that appear to us and uh, to be with our loved ones. And just as you say, it's like this sacred space. It's very special. What yeah, else? this is what I had learned. Uh, before I had done this research, the Final Words Project, I was someone— who was very, very afraid of dying. I mean, I could only imagine that dying was just a terrible end. And I did not enter into this work for someone who wanted to do this or even was a, quote, believer in any way. And as I did this research in the last five years, I've lost so much of my fear of death. And what I've seen is that we seem to be working through a process as we're dying. I remember even with my father, when I would come and say, how are you doing, Papa? He'd say, oh, I'm working on myself. I'm working on myself. And Raymond and I had a conversation about this. This be- Raymond Moody. Oh, Raymond Moody, excuse yes. me. Yes. And uh, he coined the term near-death experience in 1975. And You know, Raymond had said to me, and I saw this with my father, and now I see this is really true with many of us, that we are still growing in those weeks as we approach the threshold. We are still growing. It has not, nothing has ended. And when you talked about the survival of consciousness, one of the many things I saw uh, in my research 
there are many processes going on, and one of them is we have these very, very active dreams about leaving, about journeys, about people we've loved, and we seem to emerge out of these dreams and come out of dream time, and then we'll turn to someone, as you mentioned with your husband, and say, you know, I never told you that I loved you, or actually, I never noticed how beautiful you were, or something like three drawers down, I left all the financial files for you so you can have everything clear after I pass. And you see people moving in and out. And the question for me is I see um, this awareness that people seem to maintain, even as they're dying, the dreams, the working through something so that they can leave with the most resolution possible. How is that? How can that happen if the brain is completely dying. I mean, we know that dreams, I just read a great article on Scientific American, that when we're in REM state, in a dream state, it's where our minds are as active as when we're awake. So when you think if people are just dreaming, we are very alive. I'm here with Lisa Smart. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say as we're nearing death. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Lisa Smart. She spells her last name S-M-A-R-T-T, and she is the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, finalwordsproject.org, O-R-G, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Lisa, I'm, I'm reminded when Michael's mother died, she was living in San Francisco. We were living up in Mendocino County. She did everything she could do to make sure that she got up to Mendocino County. It was very, very difficult for her to do that move, but she made sure that she she ended up in a nursing home in Mendocino, in, in the little town that we lived in, Ukiah. And um, I remember just before she had a stroke, she, we, Michael and I were visiting her in, in the nursing home, and she said to him, uh, or to, said to both of us, she said, I'm ready to go home now. And we're looking at each other. At that time, we were traveling a lot in our lives, and, and there was no way that we could bring her home to our home and care for her like she was being cared for in the nursing home. And uh, she had had a, a, an amputation, a leg amputation, and, and so she couldn't get around very easily. So we were concerned about that. And then a day later, she, she had a stroke and ended up in the hospital. And we realized that, oh, she was talking about another kind of home because then, then she— after a couple of days in the hospital, she went into a coma. Ah. So it was, um, but that's what you're talking about, that that we get these kind of inklings. It seems we take them literal, but they may be saying something else. 
Yes. And, you know, I'm ready to go home now or I'm coming home or someone's coming to take me home. Home is probably one of the most frequently heard words at the threshold. And the question is, is what is that home? And, you know, people talk about meds and, you know, those kinds of effects. And my question back is, well, let's say it is all meds. Still, why is everybody talking about home? You know, why yeah. is that the hallucination that everybody's having? And there really is a sense that people are preparing to go somewhere because one of the other metaphors we hear so commonly is of the voyage and of the travel, of the of going somewhere. I'm thinking, too, that, that you've written about a project in England, end-of-life care project, and they were they give advice about how to be with a loved one as they're dying and they they're looking at it differently from battling the disease where we're we're somehow battling the illness but they're talking about to for us to think about it as you just said as a journey yes. we're going home to 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 use a metaphor of a journey and that gives an ease to the to the person. And it also, from what uh, from this research, and also uh, Maggie Callahan and Patricia Kelly in their book Final Gifts talks about the metaphor of the journey. It's more consistent with maybe the real vocabulary of dying. So what they found, metaphor of end of life project in the United Kingdom, they found that when people talked about disease and especially cancer as battling this illness, you know, you can never win that battle. You're never going to mm-hmm. win. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about a journey of discovery and of surrender and of peace, mm-hmm. and also a metaphor that's so much more closely allied to what seems to be the natural metaphors of the threshold, or at least in English that we know, um, that it's much more comforting to people. And can you imagine, I much prefer to think of, of anything in my life, anything, whether it's work, a radio interview, uh, you know, loving my husband. I much rather think of any of those things as a journey. That's a much better life narrative and metaphor than a battle, right? I mean, it's exhausting to think of battles. And, and they found that literally everybody on the medical team and the families felt better about the whole notion of an illness or dying as a journey when they presented it that way rather than a battle. And this is also very, very recent research, and they've put it into public policy now. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's uh, You know, I'm also reminded that in talking about all of this, it seems to me that it helps the living to relax more around the person dying, to, to, to be able to ease into letting them go into their process. I, you know, we've all experienced certain people and certain families that, that keep someone alive and just refuse to even talk about death or you know, won't even let them talk about it or that everything's going to be fine, you're going to be well, and yet they really are dying. And it kind of works against them in some way. We've seen this. Do you have any comments on that? Yes. You know, it seems that we have, or I've come to believe this, that we have an internal sense of when we're supposed to die, even if it's tra- tragically young. I mean, there I have a couple accounts of people at age 22 saying, no, no, I know it's time to go. It's time to go now. And, and really having a sense of that. If we imagine that we all come here 
for a, a known period of time. Let's just imagine that. And even if that's not true, to be held in the possibility that it's okay to leave. And we know over and over again from my conversations with hospice workers, the hardest thing for the dying is not dying by the time they're that close, but having to say goodbye or feeling the pain of those around them. The biggest gift we can give the people we love is to open the door first of our hearts and then of the threshold. And partly the way we do that is enter into the vocabulary of the journey or whatever that person's vocabulary is and believe them and not be afraid of it. And that's the gift and the challenge for those of us who are living. We also have heard from so many people who are with their loved ones at the threshold that it can be a magical time. The portal seems to open and sacred synchronicity enters in. I told you this story before we started the interview, and I, I, I'm going to tell it a, a brief, briefer rendition of this story. It has to do with Michael's mother, because this is where when when we worry about, oh, did I do the right thing? Did it, you know, that once death has happened, and in the case of his mother, we, we unplugged her and decided to let her go naturally. And Michael had second thoughts about that afterwards. He, as we were driving home uh, back after, after she had already died and we had been with her uh, in the hospital, it was so wonderful to let us just sit with her and with her body for, you know, for hours, several hours after she died before they took her away. But Michael nevertheless had a, f a moment pause, did I do the right thing? And just at that moment, it was just an extraordinary thing. Um, in, on the windshield of the car, there had been a sticker that had just been kind of placed on the bottom right-hand side of the windshield. had been there for over a year. Mm. It just was just this sticker sitting there. And at that moment that he had that thought, this sticker peels off of the windshield and falls onto the dashboard. Mm. And it says, Grateful Dead Backstage Pass. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I mean, so this was such a confirmation, the synchronicity of his having the thought and having that outward symbol that, uh, thank you, thank you. And, and in fact, the last words his mother said before she went into the coma was she said to him three times, thank you for everything. When she said it at first, he, he thought, oh, yeah, well, you're welcome, you know, to whatever it was. It was kind of surface. He took it as a surface, thank you. And then he started to walk out of her hospital room, and she said it again. Mm. She stopped him, and she said, thank you for everything. And he said, fine, Mother, that's great. Um, you're mm -hmm. welcome. And then he gets to the door of the hospital room, and the third time, just like in some fairy tale, mm -hmm. the things come in threes, she says, thank you for everything. And when he got home, he told me this story about he was, it really stopped him, and he realized 
she was saying something more than just thank you. It was like a deep, deep thank you. And those were the last words that she spoke to him. And commonly thank you and repeated thank yous occur at the end of life. And also it sounds like he really heard her. You know, he really deeply heard her. And repetition, we know Steve Jobs. Oh, wow. The, the oh, uh, wow. founder of Apple. Oh, right. thank you. Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. the founder. Yeah, he repeated, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Those were his and, last His very last words. words. So we know repetition. And I just read something uh, before I came here today um, from Bill Stillman, who's a psychic, who's also autistic and done a lot of research in language, in the language of autism. And he said threes are very highly connected with synchronicity. And he sees this also in the repetitions of people with autism, which is another topic, but that there seems to be these parallels in language and threes and repetition come up very commonly um, at end of life. Oh, more, oh, more, oh, more worlds and worlds and worlds. It gets very poetic, doesn't it? It does get very poetic. And if you think about chants or incantations, and when we talked earlier about nonsense, uh, when I was younger and I really wanted something, you know, I would say abracadabra, right? Oh, Isn't right? that word? Yeah. It's nonsense, right. right? But we have a sense that when we use language that's not part of the usual uh, mainstream narrative or Right. You know, conversational style. When we use language outside of that, it's almost as if we're, you know, asking the gods or bringing in the gods. Yes. And the, when the language changes, it's almost as if the world changes it's for like us. It's like an invocation. It's yeah. like an invocation. And there is a lot of repetition in end-of-life language. And, and it's so fascinating, too. Three seem, uh, are, seem to appear a lot in synchronicity. And um, synchronistic experiences, like it might be one, you might see a symbol once, twice, three times, uh, and then it really, that's sort of a sign from spirit. Or this, so, yes. exactly. So you're saying, and I know that I've been aware of that, when things come to me in threes, it's like, oh, I better pay attention. This is something, this maybe is something coming from the invisible world to me in some way. And I, I just want to go back to something that you said. We were talking about someone uh, suddenly becomes very lucid, maybe towards the end, and you think that they're having a, a rally or some sort, or maybe a, a spontaneous healing. And um, uh, I would I would like to talk about this in just one moment when we come back. And uh, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Lisa Smart, and she is the author of Words. At the threshold, what we say as we're nearing death. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, finalwordsproject.org, O-R-G. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Lisa Smart, and she's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. And I I'm, was just talking about um, that moment that somehow our beloved, maybe they've been very, very quiet and very peaceful, but suddenly they rally and they become very lucid. And there's one example that you give in the book that I, I think it was um, somebody um, white, his mother, I can't remember his first name, but his mother was, um, she had Alzheimer's. She had had it for a long time in her, the, the actual tissue of the brain has just shrunken and her brain is really shrunken and and it can't do all the synapses. It's just not doing anything. But suddenly, she raises up, and she is totally cogent and says, here's where the files are, and she just gives all these instructions just before she dies. What is happening there? There's something beyond the brain that is happening, obviously. And this is one of the things that has really led me to believe more in the idea of survival of consciousness, or at least some kind of consciousness besides the brain, the physical brain. And doctors in the past uh, have said this is due to a surge of adrenaline before people die, which is possible. And yet, you know, you look at someone like that whose brain is is clinically almost non-existent, right? There's so, none of the synapses are working, and yet that kind of description, or something like someone who is in a coma comes up and turns to her family and says, um, "Tell everyone I love them and I'm okay," or someone who comes up and says, "It's not what you think." Also, people make requests for food during this window of time, and sometimes it's for a few minutes, and sometimes it might be for a whole day. It's also called the sunset day, where there's, you know, just, you know how with the sunset, just before it goes down, there's this lightening of the sky or brightening of the sky. And one story that I loved is that there was one father-in-law who was sort of teased this woman about the way she looked. Not a nice thing to do, but he that was his idea of, idea of teasing her. And just before he died in this window of lucidity, he asked for a beer <laughs> and also turned to her and said, I never noticed how beautiful mm. you are. And so... In those windows of lucidity that happen commonly, and and researchers now are just getting to look at these cases, people don't say, you were the worst daughter-in-law I've ever seen. It's it's, it's almost as if they look through the eyes of source, or they see the things they may not saw before, appreciate the things they may not have fully appreciated, or they offer guidance to their loved ones. And food is often involved, which is uh, that kind of that last burst of enjoying life and sort of the sweetness of life. I can remember uh, just before, just a day, the last day for Michael, uh, my partner, and, and he uh, was in the last stages of diabetes. And, and he, um, he asked, he said, oh, Justine, I really need ice cream. Can you go get me a Ben and Jerry's, you know? And I was so distraught, like, how can I give him this poison? You know, I was thinking of it like poison. And I talked to the nurse practitioner, and I said, he's asking for ice cream. And she just looked at me, and she said, get him what." 
forever he wants. And, and so I did. I went and I got him some Ben and Jerry's. And I, I, I don't think that he actually ate it. But, yeah. you know, he I brought it back to him and uh, just relaxed into it. And, let you know, and I think he, that final sweetness is what he was asking for. It mm. had something to do with some sweetness. I think so. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because my grandmother um, asked to have chocolate shaved onto her tongue, and she joked that she wanted to see God with a little sweetness on her tongue. But, you know, maybe there was more to that than my joking grandmother. You know, maybe there is that sense that we want to return to our Creator um, with some sweetness. Exactly. Let's talk, you've done a little bit of work around comas and and how— even when someone is very quiet or even in a coma, they might, it's almost like they're telepathic. Uh, can you say something about that? Um, I write about it in the book, and most of what I found out was from interviews with Madeline Lawrence, who did a really uh, a book about uh, coma survivors called In a World of Their Own. And what she said, 70% of the survivors who she interviewed indicated they had some kind of awareness during the time that they were in coma. And I believe it was 23% had experiences of telepathic understanding that were later corroborated. For example, one person she describes knew that the doctor and the nurse in the room were having an affair. I mean, here she was completely (laughs) unresponsive, but she was whatever that, you know, William James called it me-ness, you know, that that me in us that continues even, even when it seems there's very little else going on externally. These people uh, reported being aware in some way, and in this case, this woman knew what was going on between the nurse and the doctor. And so there definitely is some kind of something that continues on, or at least in, in during coma. And, you know, a lot of the people who survived comas reported to um, Lawrence that they felt like they were Repeatedly, they heard people talk about them as vegetables, and they were literally yeah. offended because they knew that there was this thing on the, alive in them that maybe right. couldn't uh, be expressed through their fingertips or, you know, through definitely through their mouths. But they had a sense still of being very much with us. You know, uh, my experience, uh, especially like my personal experience when my mother died, and I was with her in, in that last 24 hours. It seemed like that, that night before she died, and I was sitting with her, I, I had this intuitive feeling that the, the energies were very, very subtle, and that, that to speak out loud would have disturbed things in some ways. And I know you talk about being silent and savoring. And in that moment, I just sat with her, and I, I didn't say a word, but I was just sitting there, and I was loving her. I was just sending love to her. And then suddenly, she reached over and took my hand, and she said, I know, I know. Mm. I mm. hadn't said a word, and it's mm. like she heard my my expression of love. She could she could hear it as if I had said the words. I did not articulate the words, and that's what you're talking about that that telepathic, energetic moment. That's so. Uh, what's the word for it? It's very subtle, mm. and 
very special. It's a very sacred, sacred space. Yes. You know, Rumi said, without thinking of the letters, listen to the language of the heart. And it really seems that among the different ways communication is expressed at end of life, one of them is telepathically. And again, here is another opportunity, rather than being afraid, is, as you mentioned, is to savor the silence as if we are in prayer or in meditation. And one of the people I interviewed, Sue Ronenkamp, shared this story very similar to yours, where she was... um, really felt heartbroken that her mother was no longer speaking with her and they didn't have that communication she was accustomed to. And so she decided to just sit there and communicate. Imagine she was communicating and sending love, just as you had explained. And she did that for 40 minutes. And then the nurse's aide came in and asked if um, if the, they needed lunch or anything. And then the mother opened her eyes and said, oh, Oh, everything's fine. I've been having the most amazing conversation with my daughter. So again, oh. communication, and this is one of the things I've learned through this research. I used to think communication was just one thing, you know, right. again, get yes. me the cup or, yes. you know, but it really, it's communication and we see this at the threshold more than at any other time besides maybe childhood. It is multi-layered and it includes non-verbal connections of many kinds. We know that people before they die, they'll also at the very end maybe reach upward as if they're reaching up towards someone. I just spoke to someone two days ago who shared this story. His father's muscles were completely atrophied from being in a coma and, and just completely atrophied. And right before he died, about eight hours, he reached up his hands and arms and said, Mom, oh, Mom. Again, remarkable. Remarkable. And so it, it, just paying attention to, to be quiet enough with our loved mm. ones, our beloved, to be able to experience fully that moment. And sometimes I'm, I know it might be hard if it's a hospital room and there's all sorts of things going on, but as best we can to uh, to just be very quiet as, in, as we can and, and receive uh, that deep listening, I guess, is what we're talking about. You know, what's so difficult, I think, is that we're losing someone we love and we're our grief, I mean, our grief is so powerful. Of course it's so powerful. And I know with this gentleman who told me the story about his father, yes. he didn't make the connection until he, he and I had this conversation that it was actually a, a hopeful thing that his father reached up and said, Mom. At the moment, he thought, oh, God, Dad's crazy. This, And, you know, I'm terrified. I'm losing him. He's having hallucinations. He didn't even entertain the idea because... First, the grief had overcome him as it does for most of us. And also still this idea that when we hear our loved ones say things we've never heard before that seem unique, that that's craziness or something discouraging. But I really don't think it is at all. Yeah. Oh, we could just go on and on. I've lost track of time being (laughs) with you. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being with us today. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure as well. Uh, I've been speaking with Lisa Smart. She spells her last name S-M-A-R-T-T. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, finalwordsproject.org. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3615. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.